Well, good morning. If you're not there already, I invite you to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to read through. We're last sermon today on a, a series on the Lord's Prayer. And then uh, next week back, uh, continuing on through the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, this week, wrapping up the Lord's Prayer. It's been a little while, hasn't it? We've, uh, we've been in this, and Hobson's been walking us through just phrase by phrase. And we're going to look at the last phrase there from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, so follow along with me while I read. I'm reading from the King James uh, for reasons that will become clear in just a moment. Uh, but follow with me here, beginning in verse 9. It says, um, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we're focusing on this last phrase. And if it's not in your Bible, you can see it up on the screen. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Bow with me, please, one more time before we dig in. Father, we need our eyes open to the reality of your kingdom. God, we crave for your power to be seen on this earth. And Lord, we hunger for your glory. God, we need it. We need to see your radiance. We need to see your majesty. We need our minds, our eyes to be lifted off of the mundane and onto the eternal. Help us, Lord. Satisfy our hunger today. In Jesus' name, amen. So for many years, we have been teaching our kids a catechism, uh, kind of off and on. We, we switch things up periodically, and we recently started back at it. And in this catechism, it's a children's catechism. Some of you may be using the same one. Question 10 is, where is God? Now, when my older boys were young, they would very enthusiastically answer, God is everywhere. And then they'd kind of giggle, and they'd say, he's under the table. He's in mommy's chair. He's on the ceiling. Right? And they're just kind of exploring this idea of the omnipresence of God and what that means. And it's fun. The other day I was going through this. Ethan was cleaning the kitchen, and I was in the a living room with the other kids, and I yelled into the kitchen, Ethan, where is God? He's 16 now. And he humored me. He yelled back with the enthusiasm he used to, God is everywhere. And it was so much fun. <laughs> See, little kids instinctively delight in God's glory. If you teach them that God is strong, they will ask you a million questions about how strong he is. Is he stronger than daddy? Because they flatter me. Can he pick up the house? Is he stronger than Lord Garmadon? Who's one of the main villains from Ninja, Ninja, Lego Ninjago, in case you're missing that little gem from your life. If you teach your child that God loves them unconditionally, they'll tell their little sister, Anna, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And it's so incredibly sweet to hear little children sharing these truths with one another. And it's natural for them. It's normal. It's just a part of the way they think about the world. The Catechism also teaches us that God made all things. Question three asks, why did God make you in all things? And the answer is, for his own glory. Years ago, we were on a family walk and we came upon a green pine cone that had fallen prematurely. The seed pods hadn't opened yet, and it was just so intricate, the design on it, the patterns that were in there. And I was showing it to the kids, and I said, why do you think God made it so beautiful? 
And I wasn't fishing for any particular answer, but one of them reached back to the catechism and said, for his own glory. Right? When you teach them these things, it just rolls over in their minds, and they think about it and apply it. They see it in their normal life. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is glorious. And it just naturally bubbles out of them. As we get older, we outgrow this simple wonder to our own hurt. Don't we? Have you noticed that that wonder may not be there the way it once was? When you think about the things of God, it's different in your eyes than the eyes of a young child. I flew into St. Louis late one night, and I think it was 2016, and I got on a train that would take me into Scott Air Force Base where I was stationed. I was alone on the train car, and I fell asleep. And suddenly, there was all this commotion around me. And I opened my eyes to see hundreds of people crammed into this car, and they were all wearing blue, and some of them had their faces painted blue, and I was kind of confused, and then I figured out a blues game just got out, St. Louis hockey, and they were excited. They were on that car, and they were partying it up. My nap was over. They were overflowing with the glory of victory. A journalist named Eric Simmons researched the psychology and neurology effect uh, of, of team performance on fans. And according to Simmons' study, he says this, studies show that self-esteem, I'm sorry, let me start that over. Studies show that the self-esteem of sports fans is bound up in their team's performance. People like sports because it provides a sense of belonging, a connection to a wider world. Going deeper, he cited medical journals to demonstrate how our hormones engage with sports he learned that testosterone, adrenaline, cortisol, and oxytocin are all active in fans. See, the pursuit of victory stirs something up within us, and it's our innate hunger for glory. Prior to just a couple minutes ago, who in here knew that St. Louis had a hockey team? Less than, less than a quarter, and, well, and someone that lived in St. Louis, okay. How many of you knew that they were called the Blues? Okay, probably the same number. How many of you can name a single person on that team? Okay, two people. Anybody else? Two people in this room can name someone on that team. Corbin says he can. He, he can't. <laughs> These people were, were feasting on the glory of victory over something so trivial that here we are, 100-plus people, can't name a single person on that team. Who can tell me how they fared in 2016, where they ranked at the end of the season? Jake, you got that one? No, see, even the real fans over there don't know how they ranked in 2016. And these people were just enlivened by this great performance that they thought was a highlight of their life. And just a few years later, no one remembers. We look in the wrong places. Now, if you ever feel like you just blend into the crowd put on one of these ear mics and you're going to realize that your ear is unique to any other person on the planet. John Piper wrote a book on preaching and he opened with these words, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. We're hungry and we don't even realize it. We're hungry for what our children innocently gobble up as much as we'll feed them, but we try to satisfy it with sports and politics and stock exchanges and arts and crafts and business deals and on and on it may go. The Lord's Prayer, as we traditionally recite it, closes with a doxology 
that points us to the only thing that will truly satisfy our hunger, the glory of God, his kingdom, his power, his glory forever. It tells our lonely and fearful souls that God is everywhere. It tells our dissatisfied appetites. God's glory is intricately woven into the grandest vistas and the smallest details of all creation. If we'll just open our eyes and just look for him, just look to him. We're all invited to drink deeply from this well and be satisfied. But today's sermon can't be quite that simple. Some of you are already thinking, but those words aren't in my ESV or my NIV or my CSV or whatever you're carrying. Should I pray this part of the prayer? Should it be there? Does it belong? Should I pray it? Okay, well, I'm going to give you a short answer real quick, and then we're going to spend the next 20 to 60 minutes expounding on, on the longer <laughs> answer. Um, this is not a translation issue. It's a, I'm not really kidding, but ladies, he was going to burn your lunch anyway. Just sorry, he doesn't want to, but that's just how it's going to be. Um, this is not a translation issue. It's a textual issue, right? Some Greek manuscripts contain these words and others don't. Most New Testament scholars today believe that these words were not in the original, but added sometime later. And we're going to talk about why they believe that when we get to the long answer. Uh, but to answer the question of whether or not we can pray these words, I invite you to consider 1 Chronicles 29, 10, and 11. I think we'll have this on screen. This is at Solomon's coronation. It's a great and glorious day for Israel. Uh, the kingdom is transferring from David to Solomon. And David prays this. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. See, this is a good and faithful God-honoring prayer. There is not a question when you get to this part of the Lord's Prayer. There's no question about content. There's no question about theological truth. I believe with God's help that today we'll be satisfied with an answer uh, about whether this belongs here or not. And then how do we pray it? How do we pray this portion of the prayer properly? More importantly, my prayer is that we all leave here today with a greater hunger for God's glory and a focused pursuit on where to find it. So two points this morning. Number one, how we should not pray the doxology. And number two, how we should pray the doxology. So first of all, how we should not pray the doxology. First of all, we should not pray the doxology ignorantly. Okay, we're going to get real technical here for a few minutes, and then we're going to get practical. Okay, but dig it, just ratchet up the brain a little bit. We're going to do the technical part first while we're all still kind of awake. And then when y'all are getting sleepy because my voice is droning you to sleep, then we'll get practical and hopefully that'll wake you up. All right. Technical. If we're, if we're going to pray this part of the prayer, we need to know how it got here. All right. John Brodus, who was one of the early presidents of the Southern Baptist Seminary, he said, surely it is more important to know what the Bible really contains and really means than to cling to something not really in the Bible merely because it gratifies our taste, or even because it has for us some precious associations. Now, I'll read that again, because John Brodus was born in 1827, uh, so it's a little wordy. All right, surely it is more important to know what the Bible really contains and really means than to cling to something not really in the Bible, merely because it gratifies our taste, or even because it has for us some precious associations. And I think we would all agree with that statement, so we'll try to answer the question. 
I'm going to give you a brief, very brief history of textual transmission. Where did these texts come from? Right, the Bible's made up of many, many Greek texts, the New Testament, Hebrew, and the Old Testament. We're not talking about Old Testament this morning, only the Greek texts. Where did they come from? As early as the first century, the church began to separate geographically. All right, the Western church, expanding through the Roman Empire, needed a Latin Bible, and they produced the Vulgate in 382 AD. They quickly uh, kind of lost sight of the Greek texts. They had the Vulgate, that's all they needed, and they just ran with that. The Eastern Church continued speaking Greek and produced thousands of copies of the books of the Greek New Testament. Now, they never compiled them into a single volume, but they had the specific scrolls or codexes uh, that contained the books of the New Testament. And thousands of these copies uh, were produced. We call this today the majority text uh, because there's lots of them. That family of texts are the majority text. Uh, or we call it sometimes the, the Byzantine text. Uh, because of their association with the Byzantine Empire. It's the, the eastern part of, uh, of Europe and on into Asia a bit. However, these texts are not super old. There aren't a lot of old copies of them left around. They tend to age somewhere between the 6th to 14th century. Now, that sounds old because we're Americans. It's not. It's not really that old. Uh, so imagine a scribe makes a transmission error somewhere in the 6th century. Right? He's writing along, he's copying something, and he misses a word, or, or a word looks similar and his eyes are getting tired and they don't have readers back then and he makes a mistake, right? And, and he, he makes this transmission error. But then that is copied and that goes to another congregation and they copy it. And the error is copied over and over and over again all the way to the 14th century. And you go, well, there's thousands of copies that contain this same reading. That doesn't mean they're right. It means that a scribe way back when made an error while he was copying the text. Everybody with me, right? You play the telephone game. Yeah, that's how that works. Okay, so um, we'll talk about this more in a little bit. Um, so having lots of copies is not necessarily the best evidence for accuracy. However, the King James Version, what I'm reading from today, is translated from the majority text. And there's a movement that is adamantly loyal to this textual family. You may have bumped into them before. We'll talk more about that later. There's another family of texts called the minority text, because there aren't many of them, right? Pretty obvious name. They weren't real creative, uh, the study group for that one. Uh, the vast majority of modern translations are based on this textual family. The two most important texts date back to the 4th century. They are uh, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. Now, the Codex Sinaiticus is in the British Museum in London. Codex Vaticanus, any guesses on where it might be? The Vatican, right, okay. Um, so there they are. Those are the oldest texts, and most scholars recognize them as the most reliable, the most faithful uh, to the original manuscripts. Um, and how do we know that? Why do we believe that those are the best? Well, I'm going to give you another very brief history. This one on textual criticism. All right, textual criticism. As I said earlier, the Western church was satisfied with the Vulgate, so they weren't producing a lot of texts there. Uh, they weren't really into the Greek New Testament. That was until May 29th, 1453. Any history buffs remember what happened on that good day? Constantinople fell to the Ottomans. And when that happened, the scholars gathered up as many manuscripts as they could, the scrolls, the codexes, the lectionaries, all the stuff they had, and they fled west. And so suddenly all these Western scholars are, are just, their libraries are filled with Greek manuscripts. 
Now, it's important to remember that the seminal ideas that brought about the Reformation in the early 1500s, it's already percolating in Europe at this time. There's a lot of scholars asking hard questions of the Roman church. And the Roman church doesn't want to answer those questions. And now these scholars have their hands on thousands of copies of Greek New Testament texts. And they start studying. But what they discover, of course, is that there were some monks who made some mistakes. Right? Some of it was innocent mistakes. Some of it was intentional additions where they're trying to clarify or make something a little plainer or reference an Old Testament text. And so these scholars are sitting there with thousands of Greek manuscripts and they're going, what did Paul actually write? Should this word be here? Should this say in or into? Right? Most of the textual variants are something that mundane, just a preposition change or something like that. But they're asking those questions. What did the text actually say? So they begin the process of what we call today textual criticism. Now, it's critical in the sense of critique, right? They're evaluating and critiquing. Is it this reading or this reading? Which one's accurate? It's not criticism in the sense of being critical or being, um, being uh, uh, against the text. Now, up to this point, remember, there's not a single copy of the entire Greek New Testament, and the scholars wanted one. Um, there were scrolls, codexes, lexicons, but not a single entire volume of the New Testament. So enter Desiderius Erasmus. You heard of him? He's a, a Dutch scholar who he began the process of saying, I'm going to gather all these manuscripts together, sort through them, compare them, contrast them, criticize them in the best sense possible, and determine what did the original say. And he produced a volume that the church called the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. And it was the first complete New Testament manuscript ever produced. It's a fascinating thing. It was a wonderful time in the life of Christians because they finally had a full volume that they could go to and compare it against the Vulgate. And from that, the New Testament or the, the English translation started coming in just a few years. Now, as he's doing this work of comparing texts together, there's two main approaches to it. One is looking at external evidence, and the other is internal evidence. Right, the external evidence asks the questions of, of which manuscripts contain this or that reading and how old are these manuscripts, and they compare them together. Okay, Pretty simple. And, and the basic idea, the, the usual thought, is the older the better because it's closer to the source. Internal evidence asks which reading is most likely. See, some readings are fairly easy to determine. Scholars can look at a text and say, it looks like the scribe accidentally skipped a line or missed a word. Right? That's very easy. You just imagine, well, there's this whole line missing. Yeah, they're probably transcribing, and just like you do if you're relaying a message or whatever, um, back before everything was digital, uh, you, you miss a line, you miss something. It's easy to make those kinds of mistakes. Another question that they would be asking looking at internal evidence is, does this reading sound more like the author than that reading? And they look at how else does the, this particular author phrase things as he's writing Scripture. An example of this comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Some manuscripts say, though I give up my body to be burned, while others say, though I give up my body that I may boast. Now, the two words, burning and boasting, they're similar in Greek. So it's easy to think, well, a scholar somewhere got him switched as an easy mistake to make. Which is more likely? And so scholars will look at, well, what does Paul talk about? Nowhere else in Paul's writings do we find him talk about burning or giving up his body for, to be burned, but he talks a lot about boasting, doesn't he? A lot about boasting. And they think, well, probably that was the original. 
That was probably what was on Paul's mind because he talks about that topic a lot and it fits the context well. And so most scholars will make a determination and say, well, that's the most likely reading. So if you won't go with the latter, you're in the company of the CSB and the NIV. If you think Paul meant give up my body to be burned, well, the ESV and some of the others go with that reading. So it's a fascinating thing to go, well, which one was it? And the scholars get their heads together, and they think, and they compare, and they strategize, and they come up with a conclusion. Um, other times, it seems as though a scribe intending to be helpful added text for clarity. We know that Paul is hard to read in some places, right? Peter said so himself. The early scribes did not have the same understanding of the inspiration of Scripture we do today. They knew that the Old Testament was inspired when they're working with these New Testament readings that were fairly contemporary to their own time period. Sometimes they didn't really understand that, that Paul was inspired in the same way Moses or David was. And so when they're going through a text, they may have looked at something and said, well, hey, I think he missed something, or I think this needs to be more clear, and they make a change in the text trying to be helpful, trying to give faithful Christians a more readable text. Uh, and so when we come to the Lord's Prayer, many scholars, most scholars today, believe that that's what happened here. That a scholar, a scribe, was transferring the text and said, you know, this ends rather abruptly. And it does, doesn't it? Look with me. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right? If you've got an ESV or an NIV in front of you, that's how it ends. You're like, that was rather abrupt. And so some scholar somewhere said, this needs a good closing. And he reached back to the Old Testament, to this beautiful prayer at Solomon's coronation. And he's like, I'm going to take some of those words and we're going to wrap this up nice and neat. And he writes this beautiful doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And it is beautiful. And it's theologically faithful. And it's biblical. And he added that in to say, let's close the prayer that way. Any of you listen to Steve Green? Um, you remember back when he was a big deal? Christian singer Steve Green, and he sings the Lord's Prayer, and it just sends goosebumps down your spine, right? And imagine if he ends it with, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <laughs> Come on, Steve, finish the song, right? And the scholar's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to finish that for you. And it's beautiful words. It's great. We love it. And it makes the song really pretty. Which brings us to the matter at hand, though. The King James and the New King James are translated from the majority text, which contains the doxology. The minority text does not. And the vast majority of our translation, all of our modern translations, ESV, CSB, NIV, ESV, whatever you're reading, it comes from the minority text. And that's why it's not in the Bible in your lap, but is on screen and it's here. Now, to be fair, the doxology is included in the prayer in documents as early as the 4th century. So it's pretty old. We know it's really, really old. It's in the Latin Vulgate, which is 382. Um, so if it's an edition, it's a very old edition. However, the external evidence suggests it's not in the original because it's absent from those other documents, right? From the, from those, uh, from the best and earliest manuscripts we can find. The internal evidence suggests this as well. Uh, it's more likely that a scribe reading the prayer wanted to, to end it more neatly, more in a more tidy way to give us closure. Um, that's more likely than that the scribes missed it and left it off. Uh, 
And think, too, again, about this idea that sometimes Scripture is hard to read. And that's intentional, right? The, Paul was difficult to read. He was a brilliant mind. It's hard to read that stuff, right? And it makes sense. It makes more sense to think Jesus ended it this way on purpose than that someone forgot to include those in these two dominant texts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. So the question is, should we pray the doxology? Well, sure. Sure, why not, right? It's faithful, it's biblical, it's God-honoring, but does it belong here? And the answer is probably not. Probably not. It probably does not belong here. If you have an ESV study Bible, there's a footnote that says this, it is evidently a later scribal edition since the most reliable and oldest Greek manuscripts all lack these words. However, there's nothing theologically incorrect about the wording and then cross-references 1 Chronicles 29, nor is it inappropriate to include these words in public prayers. So then why did I just spend 10 minutes of a Sunday morning sermon trying to convince you that you've been praying the prayer wrong your whole life? Because it's Mother's Day. Happy, happy Mother's Day. Yeah. Um, no, there, there's something to learn from both what Jesus chose to say in the prayer and what he did not choose to say in the prayer. Right? As Broda said earlier, surely it's more important to know what the Bible really contains and really means than to cling to something not really in the Bible merely because it gratifies our tastes or even because it has for us some precious associations. Which brings us from the technical to the practical. We should not pray the doxology carelessly. If we're going to pray it, and we can, but we shouldn't pray it carelessly. I don't know about you, but I sometimes, often, abuse God's sovereignty, or at least my own twisted understanding of it. I can use it as a crutch, as an excuse, as a means to ignore my own sin and complacency. So when I pray your name is holy in verse 9, I'm reminded that God's holiness should be manifest in my own life. And when I get down here to yours is the kingdom, I can shift my focus off of my responsibility and put it all on God and say, it's fine. He's got it. It's his kingdom. When I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm reminded of my responsibility to love mercy and do justice. And then I pray, yours is the kingdom and the power. And I can so easily say, well, I can't really do anything anyway. Right? Only what God does lasts. Only what God does matters. Who am I? I'm just a guy. And I can remove my own responsibility to be busy about the work of the gospel. I can easily excuse my lack of godly activity with the knowledge that God's will will ultimately be accomplished. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's meant to remind us that God alone sustains us and that those daily gifts should turn our hearts to him in worship. And I can easily look at his kingdom and his glory and kind of feel like, well, of course I have food. God's in control. And forget that I am moment by moment dependent on the next breath. All things consist in Jesus. And when he lets go, I collapse. And I forget that. Our fellowship group this week, uh, we, were, we were all pretty much in agreement in the discussion that it's not enough to just pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have to actually want to not sin. We have to actively flee temptation. 
We have to confront evil. We have to resist the devil. And if this doxology is not original, Jesus chooses to close the prayer with a painfully honest admission of temptation and our need for constant divine protection. And it stops abruptly, and he says, yes, exactly. Stop there. Think there. Feel there. Be aware that you need me to protect you from temptation and from evil. If we leave the prayer on that topic, we will leave it in a different mindset than if we leave it with the doxology. And I believe Jesus had this in mind. I believe he does this abruptly on a difficult topic on purpose. So if we pray the doxology, we need to do it as David did in 1 Chronicles 29. Right? It was not a pacifier to shift the focus from something uncomfortable. It was proclaimed as a glorious moment for Israel. This is Solomon's coronation, a time where it would be so easy to look at Solomon in all the splendor and wonder of kingship and think, there's power. There's glory. And David says, no, 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 no. This is God's kingdom. This is God's power. It's for God's glory. It's not about Solomon. It's not about David. It's about God. Commenting on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I can somehow take this, this beautiful doxology, this beautiful prayer, and make it an escape from actually glorifying God, from actually finding my enjoyment and my pleasure and my rest in him. So if we pray these words, we must do it, must not do it, carelessly. However, if we are going to pray them, and we should at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, let's look at number two, how we should pray the doxology. First of all, I want us to see we should pray the doxology to answer our doubts, to answer our doubts. Um, we've, uh, what we've talked about so far might be really difficult for some of you guys. Um, You've recited the prayer for years and years without an inkling of the idea that this may not actually belong in your Bible. And you're going, what's going on here? Is this okay? You're looking over at Hobson like, is this for real? Is this okay? I mean, who did you put up there in the pulpit? Is this, is this okay? You may be feeling a little confused, frustrated, maybe even a little bit betrayed. Some of you may be wondering if there's other portions of the Bible that shouldn't be here or feel like this is a slippery slope towards ditching the whole thing. I grew up in a King James-only environment. We were taught from the time I was a little bitty. King James is the only faithful translation. It's the, it is God's word for the English-speaking people. And if you ask those questions, if you get away from it, if you pick up an NIV, you're in danger. It's a slippery slope towards abandoning the entire faith. Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's only reasonable that Hobson asked me to preach this today. He's asked me to preach on the weirdness of Christianity, the book of Zephaniah, because that's near and dear to all of our hearts, um, <laughs> murder, last time divorce, so it only makes sense that he's like, hey, Eli, can you preach a text that's not in the Bible, and don't upset anyone, but explain it's not original, and preach it with authority, and be sure to honor moms, because it's Mother's Day. <laughs> so I'm like, sure, I'm moving away in a couple months, what's the worst that can happen, right? 
So now in, in reality, Hobson gave me a list of dates and their corresponding texts and is like, hey, can you take a couple of these? And, and it fit the schedule. I knew what I was getting into. Um, and, and it really, in, in reality, since I grew up in the King James only environment, if you're struggling with this, I hear you. Okay, I, I know what that feels like. And I want to be very sensitive to that, um, to, to that tradition, to that heritage. And I credit my parents and my, the churches I grew up in and the college I went to for a deep love for God's word. Um, but we've got to be honest about where these came from, where our translations came from, and what God intended to put in them, um, and even what a translation is. All right, so, so to that, like earlier, we're going to get technical for a few minutes, shorter this time, I promise, and then we're going to get practical again. Um, question is, can we trust our Bibles? And I'll short answer, yes. Absolutely. Without doubt, yes, you can trust your Bible. I'm going to give you four reasons why. Okay, number one, we have more textual evidence authenticating the New Testament than any other ancient Greek writing. Some of you are writing it down, and that was long. I'll say it again. We have more textual evidence authenticating the New Testament than any other ancient Greek writing. Okay, many scholars have compared the integrity of New Testament documents to other ancient Greek writings. Uh, many have done this study. The most current I can find on the topic is from two scholars from Biola University. It was published in 2013, so these numbers may be up there. I mean, they're still constantly digging stuff out of museums and getting access to the Vatican's documents and all this stuff, right? So these numbers may be a little bit off, but they're close. All right, and there should be a chart on screen. I think that's what we're going to have that up there. Um, Wow, that's small print. Uh, my fault, sorry. It looked good on my screen. Uh, but and I, I got to make sense of it for you anyway. So um, just for example, Plato's writings are from the, between the years 427 and 347 BC. All right? We have 210 manuscripts referencing Plato's writings. Now, they'll find more. They'll dig some more out of a cave, or they'll find something in a museum. They did, oh, that's Plato. Cool. And they'll write, but right now, 210. Those Manuscripts, the oldest ones, are 1,200 years removed from the time of Plato. 1,200 years, all right? Aristotle, he wrote between 384 and 322 BC. Uh, we have 1,000 manuscripts, also 1,200 years removed from Aristotle. That's a long time. Caesar's account of the Gallic Wars, he wrote them between 10 and 44 BC. Those are pretty important in terms of ancient Greek history. We have 251 manuscripts. They're 900 years removed from his actual writing. Homer's Iliad. Heard of that one, right? He wrote 800 BC. We have 1,700-ish manuscripts, 400 years removed, the closest to, to him. The Greek New Testament. We have more than 25,000 documents quoting containing, referencing those, those, Greek, those texts, those manuscripts. 25,000. The New Testament was written between the years 49 to 95 AD, maybe a little bit later, depending on your view of Revelation. That's not important right now. Those manuscripts are, uh, we have the oldest ones from 49 to, I'm uh, sorry, the, the oldest set of manuscripts we have, we have almost 5,800 of them that are between 30 years and 150 years removed from the original author. You see the difference here? 
between 30 and 150 years. Plato, does anybody doubt what Plato wrote? No. 1,200 years removed. Nobody's going around going, I don't know if Plato was a real dude. I don't know if he really said that stuff. I don't know. I'm just not so sure. Nobody talks that way about Plato. The Iliad, does anybody ever say, did Homer really write that? Did he really mean that? Like, I don't know. Right? Nobody questions those documents because we know it's been transmitted. It's been faithfully preserved. We get to the New Testament, and somebody, suddenly people are going, I'm not sure that Paul really wrote all those books. I don't know. Luke, yeah, it's kind of iffy. I mean, those are big stories he wrote. Did he? The New, how about the Gospels and all those miracles of Jesus? I'm not sure that Matthew was a real guy. Right? People are, tons of these questions come up. Why? Why? It's not about the history. I'll tell you that. It's not about the transmission of the text. It's not about the faithful uh, transmission and preservation of these documents at all. Um, we have copies of it that are in, the, in Coptic, Slavic, other languages, Ethiopian, Syriac, and those date to about 100 to 150 years from the original source. Um, we have almost 8,000 of those. And in the Latin, uh, between three to 350 years, you know, it was written 382, so right in that time frame, 10,000 manuscripts containing the Latin Vulgate. So how do we know that this is God's word? Look at all the copies of it we have. And the differences between them are extremely minor. We'll talk more about that. Uh, well, yeah, actually, that's the next subpoint. Number two. None of the textual variants in the New Testament challenge a single doctrine of the Christian faith. See, I grew up thinking that if we don't stick with the Textus Receptus, the majority text from which the King James came from, we're going to fall into heresy, right? We're just going to wander away from the faith and become apostate. And then I started looking at what the textual variants actually are. And it's like, like conjunctions and prepositions. And I'm not really a grammar guy, you may have noticed, but those aren't real important. I mean, sure, it affects the meaning of a sentence a little bit, but, but let me just explain it this way. When Presbyterians and Baptists argue about infant baptism, textual variants never enter the conversation. Ever. Why? Because they don't matter. They don't affect doctrine. They affect how a, how a sentence is phrased. But never, ever does it come up and we go, oh, well, if the variant was this, then the Presbyterians are right, and we should have baptized all these babies this morning. No, that variant isn't there. Okay? When evangelicals and Catholics argue about communion, textual variants never enter the conversation. When Reformed theologians and Wesleyans argue about election, textual variants never enter the conversation. Because what we have when we compare these texts, other than rare occasions like the doxology in the end of Mark, which Hobson preached about years ago, right? You dust that one off. That'll be fun. Um, there's very few changes of anything of substance whatsoever. And so we can trust our doctrine is intact. Number three, the text has not changed for 2,000 years. We have ancient Christian writings like the Didache from 300 AD, the Shepherd of Hermas from about 170 AD. When these writings quote or allude to scripture, it's the same text we read today. It's clear and plain that the church has the unadulterated word of God, and we've had it since the church's inception. He's given it to us, and he says, read it. Four, God has been using his word to bring souls to Christ globally for 2,000 years. Right? If there's any doubt of whether or not we can trust this, 
look at what it accomplishes. Look at what this word does when it confronts a sinful heart that is far from God. The flavor of churches I grew up in made the King James an idol. We were taught that every other translation was a tool of Satan to lead people away from God. Our preachers would say, that's not a version, it's a perversion. Seriously. We were taught that God inspired Erasmus the way he inspired the original authors so that his 1516 Greek New Testament from which the King James was translated was the perfect text and all other Greek texts could not be trusted. We were taught that God inspired the translators of the King James so no other English translation could be trusted. And in fact, even today, many missionaries in that movement will translate the King James into the receptor language rather than going back to the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts because they believe it's inspired just as the original authors were. We were taught that a person led to Christ with an NIV was not really saved. When I was a youth pastor, I took a bunch of kids to a youth camp, and that was taught from the pulpit. And one of my kids comes to me with her NIV and goes, Eli, uh... <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, we need to talk. So I went back and I told the pastor, we're not going back to that camp. In time, I came to learn that Jesus and Paul quoted the Old Testament at length from the Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, and it has many known errors, many known problems. The Septuagint, when you read the New Testament and you go, they're quoting the Old Testament, but it sounds different than my Old Testament, it's because the New Testament author is quoting the Septuagint. They were all speaking Greek, so that was the Bible they used. There are many known translation problems with the Septuagint. Jesus and Paul never talked about it. They picked it up, they read it, they said, this is God's word for you. And it hit the hearts of the people and it brought them to Christ. Sorry, my ear is giving me trouble again. There we go. That fact really rocked my King James only beliefs. Look with me at Matthew 11. Turn over a couple pages. Matthew 11, verse 2. John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to be executed for his moral stance based on his faith. And it says this, When John had heard in prison that the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Right? John's saying, Are you really him? I'm about to die for you. Are you really him? Jesus says to him, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 4. Jesus answered him and said, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whoever is not offended by me. When John says, Is this true? Jesus doesn't give him a bunch of scholarly evidence, a chart on the screen. He doesn't give him anything like that. He says, look at what I am doing. Look at what the gospel preached accomplishes in the hearts and lives of people. That's the evidence. And so I was sitting in a Bible college class listening to a professor say that unless your Bible was translated from the majority text, it's not God's word. It should not be trusted. Any ministry born from it is suspect. And a Japanese student raised his hand. And the professor's like, yes, Hiroshi. And he said, sorry, we're online. I shouldn't have said his name. But... Um, 
My he says this. He says, my language does not have a translation from the majority text. Are you telling me that I am not a Christian? Are you telling me that my pastor who led me to Christ is not a Christian? Are you telling me that thousands of churches and hundreds of thousands of Japanese believers are not true believers or are a lesser class of Christian than you? And he said, to his credit, I don't have an answer for you. We'll have to talk later. See, that kind of question demands good evidence. And the kind of evidence Jesus pointed John to is the answer. And the professor couldn't go there. His theology wouldn't let him. His understanding of the transmission of the text wouldn't let him do that. Here's the right answer. Hold up your Bible. Look at the spine. It's going to have three letters on it, most likely. I don't care what they are. Okay? This is God's word. And it is God's truth. And it changes hearts and minds, and it brings people to repentance. So what this means for us is this. When you recite the Lord's Prayer and you say these words, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Say them with full confidence that while you are probably not supposed to be, while they're not supposed to be in that part of your Bible, it's good. It's good theology. It's good truth. And it's for you. You can trust your Bible. So pray the prayer to answer your doubts. Let it remind you God has this worked out. He's got it taken care of, and he's given you his word. Lastly, we're out of time, but lastly, we should pray the doxology to satisfy our hunger. Now, earlier I confessed to you that I am prone to abuse the doctrine of God's sovereignty to justify my own sin and laziness. What I need is an accurate understanding of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Right? The problem's me. It's not the text. The problem's me. Right? We crave God's glory, we need God's glory, and we often don't even know it. About 15 years ago, we owned a rental home, and we were sued by a tenant. And I'll spare you the details, it's a boring story. Uh, but we, we did, had reason to withhold the deposit when they moved out. And they sued us, they slandered us, they, they took advantage of compassion we'd shown them previously, they lied about us, it was a horrible time. Now, now today, I'm 43, and I'd be like, okay, that stinks, and I'd move on, right? At the time, I was much younger, uh, we were fairly newly married, and, and it hurt, we were very naive, it was painful, it hurt. But it made us read the Bible differently at that time. When we would go do our devotions, we'd open God's word, it struck us differently. The Psalms, especially those written when David was running from Saul, he, it spoke to us in ways that we'd never heard them speak before. And those Psalms, right, lying lips and bloodthirsty evil men run headlong into an all-powerful, knowing, jealous God who stands up and protects his people. It was a glimpse of God's glory that we desperately needed at that moment. God has the last word. It's his kingdom. He's the one with power. And I imagine many are in a similar place right now. In your life, in your walk, there, there's something you're wrestling with, and it's painful, and it's hard, and you came here looking for something other than an ancient Greek lecture this morning, and I'm going to spend just a few minutes, few minutes here giving you that. Maybe you feel desperate. Maybe you've asked Jesus to teach you how to pray, and he said, pray like this, and so you've been praying like this, and and there's some pieces missing still. And maybe with God's help, we can look at his sovereignty and glory and kind of fill those gaps just a little bit. 
Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus says, pray in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you want to hallow God's name. You want to honor him and see him as holy. And that does give you some comfort as you pray this way. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you beg for his will to be done here, but it's not happening yet. And that's frustrating. And that's hard. And your needs, whatever they are, you're just going, I, I don't see it fulfilled yet. And you're waiting on him. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That was a great sermon, wasn't it? What a great reminder that this bread, it's our daily sustenance. It's what we need day by day. Now, because of preservation and refrigeration, our cabinets are full, our refrigerators are full. I've got lunch cooking right now in a crock pot, right? So what does this mean? It means what do I need today? What do I need to sustain? It's more than just food. And so maybe you, you've, some of you work in the medical profession. Some of you work in law enforcement, some in the school system, some in the military, some in food service. And now, so much more than ever, you are short-staffed. You're lacking the resources you need to meet those daily normal needs of the job and your work of public service. You're encountering an increasingly hostile clientele, people you just want to serve, but their patience, like yours, is running thin, and you feel desperate. Give me today my daily bread. Like you needed enough COVID tests at the height of the pandemic and you just didn't have them. And people were coming to you scared and needed you to meet their need, and you, you didn't have what they needed. Maybe you need enough supplies for your classroom only to experience more budget cuts. And you're going, I cannot convince my spouse to let me buy more construction paper for this classroom. So that's what our teachers are doing. They're buying stuff out of their own pocket. You don't have enough officers to keep the streets safe, but recruitment is impossible because it's a hard time to be a cop. God, give me today my daily bread. There's a real need here that needs to be met, and I'm, falling, I'm coming up short. Give me today my daily bread. And in that prayer, you breathe a realistic sigh of surrender. Maybe you add, give me grace to press on if you choose to withhold my daily bread. You get to verse 12, and maybe you stumble over it, right? Because you're harboring a little bit of bitterness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you hope your salvation's not tied to your own willingness to forgive? Hobson sorted that one out for us. Verse 13, after last week, maybe you understand a little better that you need to flee temptation and ask for God's protection from it, from your, from your own temper, your own lust, your own tendency to covet someone else's job or a house or the freedom from the burdens that you carry, right? You're going, I don't want to be tempted to covet and want these things. God, help me. God, help me. And these are good prayers. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. But did you know there are many, many more prayers in the Bible? This isn't the only one, right? John 17, where Jesus prays for us, looks very different than this prayer. And let's not forget the black letters of the Bible are just as inspired as the red letters of the Bible. And so we can go to the Psalms and we can find this rich book of prayers that say all kinds of things like, like, you know, may my enemies melt away like a snail. And we're like, what does that mean, right? <laughs> There's a rich treasury of prayers we can go to. And words like our doxology today 
can be really helpful when we find ourselves in that place of despair and we're going, I'm praying the way Jesus taught me to pray, but my heart is still heavy. Turn your eyes to these words. Yours is the kingdom, right? Yours is the kingdom. News anchors want you to believe that America is on the cusp of losing all you hold dear, including your faith. And God says, no, 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 no. This is my kingdom. You belong to my kingdom. Not not this one. You belong to my kingdom. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, right? So the psalmist is seeing the world getting farther and farther away from God and mocking his authority. And then he says this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Isn't that wonderful? Right? We're so afraid of losing it all. We're so afraid that everything's going to fall apart. And all the evil, all the wicked people who are promoting their own agendas and, and trying to scare us to vote this way or that way, and God laughs at them because it's his kingdom. He's got it. It's his kingdom. You feel like things are out of control. There's only one king, and he's not surrendered an inch of his territory to the enemy. He's laughing at those who think he did. Rest well, Christian. Satisfy your hunger here. The kingdom still belongs to God. Yours is the power. One of my favorite one-liners in the Bible comes from Psalm 50. Right? God gives us a peek at his portfolio. He says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, the wild beasts of the field are mine. He's saying, it's all mine. And then comes the best part. I love it. In verse 12, God says to us, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What are you going to do about it? It's all mine already. You can't feed me. If I were hungry, that's a big if, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, right? We may feel like things are spiraling, like, like, like no one is able or willing to hold Russia accountable, right? No one's able to restock the shelves of baby formula. That's real. Our health needs may be beyond reach. Our wayward loved one is beyond saving. God here reminds us the power's not in our hands. It's always been in his Yours is the power. Yours is the power. No man, no supply chain, no stubborn heart can thwart that. It's his power. And lastly, yours is the glory. My dear friend, how much energy have you wasted pursuing glory in the 2016 St. Louis Blues? Or your equivalent of it? It's not going to matter. It's not going to feed you. It's not going to sustain you. It'll feel good for a moment. Enjoy the game. Not today. It's Mother's Day. If she turns it on, cool. Don't you go do it. Okay? But know that your hunger will only be satisfied in the glory of the eternal king. Nothing else can come close. And then he ends it with forever and ever. Amen. It's always been this way. It will always be this way into eternity and beyond. Amen. Let it be. Dear friend, if you can't pray this prayer, there will be people at the white flag over there, or I'm sorry, the blue flag, um, or the white flag. Which flag? The white flag. I hear it every week. I should know that. 
They'll be standing right over there. They'd love to help you. If you're here, maybe you came with your mom today, and you're like, that was not what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a couple of carnations, and moms are great. Go home. No. Um, but maybe you're here, and you're going, I, I, don't, I can't pray this way. Talk to the folks over here. They'd love to help you. They'll be standing there, shaking hands on your way out. Say, hey, can we talk? They will take you back to one of these rooms, have a great conversation. Let them do that with you today. Let them do that for you. Won't you come to Jesus and find what your soul craves? I'm going to close with this. I don't know what the benediction plan is today. They're going to do a benediction here in a moment. I'm going to close with a... This is a text I use as a benediction oftentimes at the end of a service. It's from Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Father, I pray that you would draw the soul to you today who doesn't know you. Father, I pray that those believers who know you but maybe have wandered far or feeling distant, call them back to you. Encourage them. Fill them. Satisfy their longings for you in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.